Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we are thrilled to be able to bring to you all eight talks from Ripperologist Magazine's 21st birthday conference that took place at the Chamberlain Hotel in London over the weekend of the 3rd and 4th of September, 2016. The following presentation is by the prolific true crime writer Ben Johnson, who is the author of the book Charlie Peace, Murder, Mayhem, and the Master of Disguise. As with all of the series of talks from the Ripperologist Conference, a compendium of sorts featuring articles from all of the speakers was published in Ripperologist Magazine number 151, and I encourage all of our listeners to obtain and refer to that issue for further reading as well as seeing some of the images that were used in these presentations. If you do not yet receive Ripperologist, you can easily join their subscription list for free by emailing contact at ripperologist.biz. And now over to the Chamberlain Hotel and Ben Johnson on Charlie Peace. Warm welcome for Ben Johnson. Good afternoon. So, um, as Richard just said, I'm the third part of the Casebook Classic Crime Team along with Frog and Samantha. Uh, the reason that I'm up here today, rather than sitting down there with you guys, is that my biography of Charlie Peace was released a couple of weeks ago, and secondly, because I once mentioned to Frog that I could probably fill 45 minutes of conference time. Um, so, to give you a bit of background, like Charlie Peace, I live in Sheffield. Um, which isn't, it's not a short journey down here and we're off to Cornwall straight after uh, this conference so I could really do without having to take a lot of books with me. <laughs> um, I'm going to be, um, a lot of it will be ad-libbing and I'm also going to be reading some passages from my book. Um, I would like to have had you all sitting cross-legged in a semicircle around me but we haven't really got room for storytelling corner. So, Charlie Peace, we've all heard of him. Um, some of us know the story better than others, which is why I'm hoping today I can share the story in brief with you and also tell you the story of the two men who were brave or foolish enough to stand in his way. Uh, both were policemen. Uh, both stories unfortunately had very different outcomes. So, let's just uh, take a look at Charlie Peace. So, that's it. That's, uh, that's what a Yorkshireman looks like when he hits 40. <laughs> Yeah, it's an absolute Adonis of a man. Um, this is a man who's never ordered a lager top in his life. Which, which is ironic because there's only a couple of Yorkshire men in the room and I'm the one that's drinking shandy. Okay, so, yeah, this is Charles Frederick Peace, as he was known to his family, or whatever name he could think of to the police. John Ward, John Thompson, whatever came into his mind. So, I don't know how familiar you all are with the story, but I'm going to give you a brief account anyway, uh, mostly because it's important to know what kind of character we're dealing with here, and also because I've got to keep this going until the buffet opens. <laughs> so, um, Charlie had a fairly unremarkable childhood, really, which is uh, quite an achievement for the son of a one-legged lion tamer. Um, he was one of those kids, he didn't really excel in school, um, but you know, what he liked in academic talent, he gained in personality, and he, he had quite a unique set of talents, he was very acrobatic, very creative. Um, unfortunately, they're not talents that were particularly sought after in Victorian schools. Um, 
even at the end he couldn't read or write very well, but he could climb up a drain pipe like nobody's business. And uh, he loved to make up songs about people. Um, in fact, the more I read about him during my research, it, it struck me really that in today's society, uh, as a child, he probably would have been somewhere on the autism spectrum or the attention deficit um, spectrum. Because if you look at his old school reports, unfortunately, in the bad old days, um, kids like this were just stupid, unruly, and would never amount to anything. Well, but showed them, didn't he, in the end? <laughs> so it was bought in a place called Angel Court, which used to look like this. But uh, unfortunately, it now looks like this. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, which reminds me, I was going to call the first chapter of my book uh, Dragged Up Behind Argos. But, uh, I didn't think the publishers would be too keen. So, uh, get rid of Argos now. So, here he is. Here's the picture that most people recognise of Charlie Peace. Uh, it's quite a famous photograph. Uh, unbelievably, he is. Um, only in his mid-thirties, around that point. He did have a very, very hard paper round. Um, so he was, what happened is, he was um, typical Yorkshire youth, but then he ended up in, a, in an accident at the steel rolling mills where he worked, which um, left him hospitalised for a year, uh, in which time he, um, he left the hospital with a pronounced limp and also uh, a very damaged left hand, which... Uh, he took uh, great lengths in concealing in his later days, um, as it was something that pointed him out immediately from the crowd. He did, uh, later on, he fashioned himself an actual uh, prosthetic with a hook on, so that police would think he was a one-armed man, as opposed to a man who was missing some fingers. So, it was after this point, after the accident, when um, Charlie turned to crime, because, to be honest, there wasn't a lot of call for disabled steel workers. In, in the Victorian era, uh, he had to provide for his uh, his aging mother and for his siblings. Um, so this is when he turned to crime. Unfortunately, it was it seemed to be the only option that was left to him, apart from his family being taken into the poorhouse. But it would be several years and uh, a lot of burglaries, really, until Peace perfected his art. Um, a mix of bad judgment, poor decision, and a love of whiskey. Just saw him, um, he served four prison sentences uh, before the period where his story really begins, um, all of them increasing in length and all of them for burglary. However, when he did, um, when he was released from that fourth prison sentence, that, this is when he met his wife, his future wife, Hannah, and he did promise to Hannah that he'd, uh, he'd mend his ways, but uh, obviously, as we all know, that never happened. Um, so, Eventually, the, the couple, with along with um, Peace's stepson, Hannah's daughter, uh, Hannah's stepson, Willie, they moved into a house in uh, a place called Darnall in Sheffield, which is, uh, it was a nice place um, to live back then. It's probably the least said the better at the moment. Um, and it was at this point when he met the couple, um, Kate and Arthur Dyson, who eventually would become a big part of the story. Uh, however, today, as the theme is watching the detectives, they're not a big part of the story. They are just part of the story today. So he met Kate and Arthur Dyson. He was immediately taken with Kate. Um, they, they'd both moved over from uh, Cleveland, Ohio, where they'd emigrated to 
um, during their childhoods. And Kate was um, Kate was something of a good time girl. She liked to drink. She liked to go out. Her husband Arthur was very much the Victorian gentleman. Um, he wasn't. He didn't like things like that. So she found very much kindred spirit in Charlie. And they did go out together. They went to drinking pubs. They went to local fairs. Eventually, it got to the point where Arthur wasn't having it anymore. Gave Kate the ultimatum, and. So Kate eventually went with her husband's wishes, which led to um, one of the first very violent incidents in Charlie Peter's life, which is when he approached Kate in the street and pointed a revolver into her face and uh, told her that in no uncertain terms that if she didn't go against her husband's wishes, then he'd kill both of them. So after this happened, Peace, who was already known very well to the Sheffield police, he had no choice but to lay, life, lay low for a while. So he made a little trip across the Pennines. And uh, it was during this time that Peace committed a crime that um, quite a few people don't really know about and which wasn't actually accredited to Peace at the time. So, having crossed the um, Pennines into Lancashire, Peace took the opportunity he decided he was going to uh, do a little job in Lancashire. He didn't tell his wife exactly what the little job was, obviously, but I think we can all guess. And unfortunately, whilst in the middle of this, he was disturbed by a policeman, uh, the uh, unfortunately named Nicholas Cock, um, who chose to investigate the rustling in the bushes on that evening. So, vaulting the wall, landing at the feet of the suspected robber, PC Cock found himself looking down the barrel of a revolver and before long two gunshots rang out. Cock was in the final moments of his life and peace, peace was nowhere to be seen. So I'm going to read to you now um, an extract from my book which is entitled Three Irish Brothers. A mysterious journey from the East Riding of Yorkshire to the outskirts of the industrial city of Manchester had brought Charlie Peace to the leafy outlying area of Wally Range, now a thriving suburb in the northwest's most populous city. But in 1876, the area was largely made up of a few modest rows of houses, which merely interrupted the panorama of the Lancashire countryside. This wasn't the kind of place where outsiders were welcomed, yet the village had seen a few new arrivals in recent days and weeks. The long-suffering Hannah Peace had been left to run the family's latest business venture in Hull, where Charlie Peace had opened an eating house. Given the prolific career of Charlie Peace, it doesn't require too much of a stretch of the imagination to assume that the remote yet modestly wealthy homes of local farmers and shopkeepers were the business that, to which Peace was about to attend. Being a good few miles from the city and with the whole of the surrounding countryside into which to escape should any of his frequent nocturnal misdemeanours be discovered, it would seem that Peace had found himself the perfect location in which to line his pockets and the coffers of his new legitimate business in Hull. Unusually for Peace, his arrival in town had turned no heads, and it would seem that on this rare occasion, the flamboyant and unique character had deliberately sought to slip into Wally Range relatively unnoticed. For now, sobriety and understatement were the order of the day. This was just a suited and bespectacled businessman going quietly about his work. For once in Charlie Peace's life, he was the man that nobody noticed. Unwittingly aiding Peace in his attempts at anonymity, another group of visitors to Wally Range had arrived in the area some months before. 
Despite their legitimate employment as farm labourers, they were certainly not unknown to the residents, especially the innkeepers and policemen, who knew each of the three men by name. By all accounts, when the sun set over the farms and work was finished for the day, it was time to batten down the hatches and lock up the innocent and genteel daughters of the parish. The three young men were brothers, Frank, John and William Haberin. They travelled from their native island in search of work and adventure. The work had been easy to come by. Seasonal farm labourers were very much in demand in the more rural outreaches of British towns. And these three strong young men certainly knew how to do an honest day's work. However, the adventure that would come their way would be of earth-shattering proportion and result in the family name being recorded in the history books of eternity. Their employer, a farmer by the name of Mr Deakin, had always thought, that, thought highly of the three brothers since their arrival and even allowed them to lodge in a barn on his land during the stay. They were diligent and tireless workers, and he trusted these men enough largely to leave the running of his livelihood to them. However, in a small, tightly knit community such as Wally Range, stories travelled quickly, and it had been frequently noted that the night time brought out the demons in Frank, John and William. Their destination of choice after a hard day's labour was the Royal Oak Pub. Although the inn was usually the kind of quiet, homely establishment which one would expect to find in the rural areas of the north of England, when the Habrons paid a visit it was often reported to be more akin to a rowdy Wild West saloon. On several occasions the police attended the premises, only to find broken glass, blackened eyes and raucous singing. Of the three, it was the youngest brother William who was the ringleader of most of this nocturnal mayhem. Although John and Frank enjoyed their evenings of drink and debauchery just as much, it was William who was always the first to raise his fists. Being a tall, powerfully built young man, there were usually no takers when William frequently offered to fight anyone unfortunate enough to have been in his path when he was this way inclined. But on one particular night, he found himself a willing sparring partner amongst the men of Wally Range. This was a Saturday night, 31st of July 1876, and the bar was busy with weekend drinkers. On nights like this, the Habrons were less likely to be kept an eye on by the innkeeper, although it's a regular occurrence for the local policemen to look into the establishment on their rounds while the brothers were in attendance. The reputation of the brothers added to the apparent need for a regular patrol of the premises would lead many to believe that the proprietor of the pub was keen to keep a tight rein on his rowdy customers, but he also relied on their regular custom. Barring three men who seemed to be more than happy to pass their week's wages over the bar would have been a bad decision for any business. Constable Nicholas Cock was well known to the publican of the Royal Oak and to his customers. He poked his head round the door for the first time that night at around 10pm and was surprised to see no signs of trouble amongst the, drunk, the drunken clientele. The pub was rowdy and busy, but the atmosphere seemed to be one of good-natured revelry. However, on seeing William Habron in state of drunkenness, Constable Cock decided to make another visit as his round brought him back to the pub. A week earlier, he'd been called by the landlord and arrived to find William letting fly with his powerful fists after an argument with a local man. The fight itself was quickly stopped and the quarrel calmed. However, it would appear that William was not a man who enjoyed being publicly admonished. This was by no means the first time somewhat zealous and youthful Nicholas Cork had been forced to intervene in the Havron's unruly behaviour and he knew it was time to put his foot down with the ringleader of the Royal Oak Revelers. Having dispersed the excitable crowd and separated the two protagonists, Constable Cock turned to William and jabbed an authoritative finger in his direction before threatening further punishment. Look here, Havron, I'm tired of this. The next time you raise disorder here, I'll have you in front of the magistrate. The fact that this seems to be an irregular occurrence, yet this was the first threat to William of ending up in the dock, does seem to suggest that the behaviour of the young Irishman had been tolerated thus far and seen as a petty annoyance to the inhabitants of the community. However, a line always has to be drawn, 
but this was not recognised by William and was taken as a challenge. He was being challenged by a man only four years his senior in front of an audience and in a state of drunkenness combined with his need to retain dignity in front of his opponent and his brothers. This threat could not be taken without rebuttal. Here he was, towering above the averagely built Bobby who had so publicly chastised him, he had no choice but to reply with a threat of his own, a threat that would come back to haunt him in a very, in a very short space of time. It'll be a sorry day for you, the day you arrest me. Returning to the pub on his next round, Constable Cop will no doubt have been reminded of his threat towards William Hadburn a week earlier, and would also have remembered the warning he received in response, especially as on his approach to the inn, the night air was filled with the telltale signs of shouting, swearing, and glass being broken. If Hadburn was involved, Cock had no choice but to act on his previous warning, and knew that even subduing this habitual miscreant was difficult enough in itself, let alone detaining him until he could be seen by the magistrate. PC Cock would have prayed it wasn't Havron who was the cause of the commotion, for this time matters would have been taken further, and that would involve the intervention of John and Frank, the brothers of William. There was no way on earth that the two other Havron boys would allow their brother to be taken by the police. It would be wise to wait for his colleague, Constable Beanland, to arrive before wading into the chaos. Eventually the two policemen entered the building to be greeted with a sight that surprised neither of them. William Habron and a burly local labourer in the midst of a fist fight which was of such magnitude that the landlord of the pub feared for his furniture. With assistance from Constable Beanland and the fearful landlord, Cock eventually managed to place himself between the two men while the locals held the protagonists back from one another. Between them, Beanland and Cock managed to drag, drag Habron back to their little station situated just a stone's throw from the inn and placed him in the cells until he could be brought before the magistrate. However, on this rare occasion, many witnesses to the brawl insisted that, unusually, Habron had been the injured party. Almost the entire crowd of onlookers had spared Habron of any, of any blame, instead reporting that the burly labourers who had picked on Habron in his unusually sober state were eager to be known as the man who beat the Irishman at his own confrontational game. It would appear that Habron had taken some notice of Cox's threat the previous week, and his brothers, along with many other drinkers from the Royal Oak, had insisted that William had be behaved impeccably for the entire evening, even slowing down his usually rapid and voluminous intake of alcohol. But PC Cock had made a promise, and he decided to let the magistrate be the judge of whether Habron should shoulder the blame for one night too many of violence and debauchery. This was to prove a very unfortunate decision, as the very next day, which was actually a Sunday, so would have suggested that the matter was dealt with by the magistrates as a matter of urgency, the magistrate in nearby Chalton Cumhardi ordered that Habron be released immediately after listening to the testimony of the many hungover witnesses. Feeling not only slighted by being arrested by his nemesis, but also angry that for once he wasn't to blame, Abron strode from the dock and pushed the group of spectators aside before standing eye to eye with Constable Cock and delivering another, another chilling warning for all to hear. I promised you a sorry day if you ever ran foul of me. I'll do you in for this. This was a threat that many would remember, being so publicly delivered in front of a magistrate himself. It, it would appear that the only soul in the courtroom to be dismissive of such a warning was Cock himself, who retorted to his opponent with a sense of dismissal and boredom. Oh, you're all bluster and wind. I know you. And with that, the ever-diligent Constable Cock took his leave to return to his rounds. Little did anyone know they would only have hours to live. At ten to midnight, as his rounds were drawing to a close, Cock walked the, walked the streets of Wally Range, again with his colleague James Beanland, and this time a law student named John Massey Simpson. 
The three paused for a while under the gaslight of a street corner and chatted amicably about the events of the day and no doubt the previous night before Massey bid the two policemen good night and began his short walk home. It was at this point that Beanland was alerted to a noise in the distance and saw what appeared to be a stooping man. Furtively entering the unoccupied property of the local businessman, Mr John Greatrix, keen not to alert the man to their presence until they were close enough to apprehend him, the two men split up and quietly approached the area in which they had seen the man. The two drew Ebeneira, circling their suspect, trapping him at the scene of the crime. Unfortunately for Cock, it was he who had reached the suspect first and found a man trying to conceal himself in the darkness. Their eyes met for a brief moment before the intruder took to his heels and tried to flee the scene. The young Nicholas Cock was too quick for the stooping man and blocked his escape, only to find himself staring down the barrel of a hastily produced revolver. As dedicated to his job as ever, PC Cock propelled himself towards the armed intruder, only to be shot at. The first shot had been a warning and had sailed deliberately wide of the young policeman. Failing to take heed and to allow the man to pass, Cock made a decision that was to cost him his life. He would stop at nothing to apprehend the man who had fired at him in the darkness. A second shot rang out, and this shot was not a warning. The bullet had entered PC Cock's chest and knocked him off his feet. He collapsed into the mud instantaneously. Wasting no time, the assailant fled like a scalded cat, vanishing into the darkness of the Lancashire countryside. With his final breaths and remaining strength, 23-year-old Nicholas Cock yelled into the night, Murder! I'm shot! I'm shot! The two gunshots had caused John Massey to turn on his heels and race towards the commotion. And as he approached, he heard a shrill whistle for assistance blown, blown desperately into the air by Constable Beanland. He arrived to find the life rapidly draining from his friend, and Beanland helplessly attempting to stop the flow of blood from his colleague's wounds. Just a short time later, the body of Constable Cock became calm and still. He was removed by horse and cart to the premise of a local doctor, Dr Dill, but died before his superior officer could arrive. He'd been tragically killed in the line of duty, and someone would be made to pay for this heinous act of murder. The two men were soon joined by Police Superintendent Bent, who had been alerted by the whistle of Constable Beanland. Wasting no time in trying to apprehend his constable's killer, Bent asked Beanland to describe the man who they'd followed into the grounds of the house. Being sure of only a brown coat and a commonly worn hat, Beanland made a statement which, whether out of revenge or an innocent mistake, given the darkness and confusion of the events, would pervert the course of justice for both the attacker and the case of a whole. I suspect it is Will Habron. Unfortunately for all involved, the only man present who had seen the man in close proximity was now dead. His, ledless, his lifeless head cradled in the firelight of the doctor's parlour by the colleague who would stop at nothing to see justice brought to the killer of his friend. If Cock had been able to speak, he would have confirmed that the man who fired at him so cruelly, so cruelly was a good deal older than William Hagram and nowhere near as powerfully built. In fact, he was a man so rich in unusual features that he would have been apprehended almost immediately if anyone had been able to describe him. The dark night was quickly lit by lamplight and burning torches as a small army of policemen and local residents strode through Wally Range towards the farmland. This was a real-life witch hunt, and the mob wanted blood for the murder of such a dedicated and diligent young officer. Someone was going to hang for this, be it by the laws of the land or at the hands of the shocked and outraged townsfolk. Upon reaching the outhouse, which was home to the Habron brothers, an opinion was formed that a member of such a close-knit family would not have acted alone in exacting retribution upon the man who had damaged their family pride. All three brothers would be arrested and the guilty party would be discovered after it was ascertained who was a killer 
and who was an accomplice. In an unfortunate indication of guilt, a candle which burned inside the which burned inside the barn was quickly extinguished as the hastily assembled army of witchfinders approached the building. The gang fanned out and surrounded the last bastion of protection afforded to the three labourers. As Superintendent Bent sent Mr Deacon into the farm to nervously check that his employees were in situ before sweeping in behind him and bellowing towards the trio of marked men. William Habron, John Habron, Frank Habron, I arrest you in the name of the law for the murder of Constable Cork. We are armed and will shoot unless you light up and show that you mean to give no trouble. With hands raised in the air and the colour drained from their normally ruddy faces, the three men slowly and cautiously arose from their beds. Protesting weakly that they'd been asleep the whole time and that they, they knew they had no chance of escape and that their only hopes lay in the hands of justice themselves, their only, opinion, their only option was to cooperate and tell their stories to those who would decide their fate. The three were immediately transported to the nearby Old Trafford Police Station, Manchester, where they would be held until trial. In a rare attempt at forensics during the Victorian era, the decision, was, the decision was made to gather up the clothes and boots of the suspects. These will be examined thoroughly and presented at the trial should the need arise. Inquiries were also made, and when asked to describe a man who had asked for the price of some revolver cartridges on the day of the murderer, two local clerks had stated that the man could have been an unfortunate William Habron. While the brothers languished in jail, Su Superintendent Bent had made something of a discovery. Returning to the scene of the murder with one of William Habron's boots, he discovered that a footprint close to the spot where Constable Cock had been discovered closely resembled the tread of the boot which he had brought. However, the manufacturing of the boots had been fairly common, and no impressions or imprints were taken. Despite the tenuous nature of the, of the discovery, the boot was tagged and included with an ever-growing arsenal of evidence <laughs> against William Habron. Another cruel twist of fate was to befall the unfortunate suspect, as percussion caps from a gun were found in the pocket of a waistcoat which had been worn by William that very night. The chains of justice were beginning to tighten for this frightened 19-year-old Irishman, and by the time the trial arrived, he was named as the prime suspect amongst the three. The courtroom was packed for this case, as such a needless and cruel murder of a dedicated police officer had filled the, lo the local area with rage and revulsion. Reporters from all over the country descended upon Manchester, along with witnesses and the intrigued public, one of whom was a stooping gentleman with a pronounced limp and wild staring eyes, who attended every day of the trial, and listened intently as the damning array of evidence was presented. In the face of such a strong prosecution case, the defence made a valiant attempt to refute the charges brought against the brothers, and Frank Cabron was released without any charge being that there was no evidence whatsoever to link him to the murder. He was released into society with no job, no home, and without his two brothers. William and John stood side by side in the dock, and being poorly educated and barely literate, the prosecution found cross-examining to be easy pickings. In a short space of time, the two terrified men had contradicted their story of events, and the, police, and the prosecution barristers were ready to pounce upon every forced mistake and every variation in the statements of the two prisoners. It would seem that the only ally that the two remaining Habrons had was their former employer, Mr Deakin, who had always been full of such praise for his labourers, even, de even defending their behaviour during those wild and debauched nights in Wally Range. He emphatically informed those present that the two, especially William, were hard-working and honest employees, and even testified that the waistcoat in which the percussion caps were found had belonged to him and been loaned to William on that fateful day. 
The damning boot was then produced, and although the judge, Mr Justice Lindley, and his jury had seen no imprint or photograph of this vital evidence, they appear to have been more than happy to take Superintendent Bent's word for it, that the boot, man that the boot matched the muddy footprint at the scene of the crime, and they asked no questions in regards to the validity of the piece of evidence, which could only be compared to a long, washed-away footprint. The main piece of evidence was the final nail in the coffin of William Avron, the public threat he had made to Constable Cock in a much smaller courtroom just a few miles away. These had come back to haunt him. And this was something which the defence counsel could not counter. Their only argument was that this was an unfortunate coincidence. This was summarily dismissed by the judge, who refused to believe that such a coincidence could occur, especially as the threat was made on the morning of the murder in question. And on this note, the trial was halted for deliberation. After a few days of weighing up the overwhelming circumstantial evidence, the proceedings were reopened in Manchester, and the crowds once again flocked to the courtroom. The first business of the day was for the judge to turn to the jury and ask them to decide the future of John Habron. The jury had voted unanimously that John be released, so he was found not guilty, and allowed to join his brother Frank in returning to lawful society. Not so fortunate was William. The powerful array of evidence against him had been too strong for the defence counsel to credibly argue against. He was found guilty, but being of tender years, a recommendation of mercy was made in a token attempt to save his young life. I am innocent, was the desperate reply of William Habron, but his plea had once again fallen upon deaf ears. The judge donned his black cap and sentenced the terrified young man to death. Nobody present in the courtroom was shocked. This was exactly the outcome the gathered observers had expected and hoped for. There was to be no surprise reprieve on that day. Indeed, the day had progressed with very little in the way of drama. Only a small scuffle at the beginning of the proceedings had raised any eyebrows, and this was an agitated attempt to secure a front row seat by a strange-looking man, appearing older than his years with a pronounced limp, who raised his voice in the hushed courtroom. Out of my way. I came all the way from Sheffield to see this. So, as we can see, the next slide. Here we go. This is the um, the monument to uh, Nicholas Cock. His original grave was removed, and this is at the uh, Police Museum in Preston now. And we've also got his uh, burial certificate at the bottom. He's registered in Cholton Cumhordy. So, from this point, you'd think that Charlie Peace would have thanked his lucky stars and kept his nose clean. Unfortunately, the first thing he did after this was go back to Sheffield, where around two days later, he killed again. This time he killed the wife of his friend, uh, the husband of his wife, uh, the, the husband of his friend, Kate Dyson. He'd, um, he'd stalked the couple and he, um, he spent one evening in the darkness at the back of their garden in a small passage um, in those days obviously the toilets were outside they were at the back of the gardens um, he spent all night crouching in the bushes waiting for Kate to come out waited for it to go in and then as she came out peace was there and for the second time he put his revolver into Kate's face she started to scream and her husband who was uh, quite an athletic fellow was on the scene immediately, running up the garden path. And after this, there was a, a short chase. It was short because Charlie Peace uh, wasn't really capable of running a long distance due to his injuries. So he chose rather than to flee, 
he turned and once again fired his revolver. The first one missing, the second one entering Arthur Dyson's head straight through the left temple. Arthur Dyson died just hours later and once again Charlie Peace had disappeared. His escape this time took him cross country. He went first uh, just down the road to Rotherham and then he, where he caught a train to, uh, to and around other parts of Yorkshire before heading south to Derby, Leicester and eventually Nottingham. And it was while he was in Nottingham, he lived in an area which was um, is it quite a crime-filled area. It was, it was very akin to the slums of the major cities. And it was at this point where he, um, he began to work on his, what became his, his famous methods of disguise. He'd realised that due to um, a dislocated jaw, a dislocated and broken jaw he'd suffered, uh, a few years before he was able to dislocate his jaw at will which he would push out in front and he'd allow all the blush, all the blood to rush to his head and this was so successful that after several brushes with the law um, they listed him as a half-caste gentleman which obviously is, um, is very very useful to a man on the run when the police haven't even got your race correct so he also at this point began to dye his hair and he, he um, also he used walnut oil he used that to change the colour of his skin so he'd, he'd dye himself so he looked permanently tanned he'd dye his hair black and during this time he actually returned to Hull to go and see his family he knocked on the door his daughter answered he asked to see his wife his daughter said mum there's a gentleman see you at the door his own daughter didn't even recognise him so, it, so peace now in Nottingham. He takes up with uh, a widow, Susan Gray. She's a uh, former music hall singer known as the Nottingham Nightingale, but she'd fallen on hard times. She, uh, she like Kate Dyson, was a bit of a drinker, and uh, you know wasn't averse to a bit of petty crime. So the two, the two lived happily together for a while, until peace made a rare mistake during a burglary in which he was almost caught and again he had to level his revolver at a policeman this time he made his escape without needing to fire a shot but his card had been marked in Nottingham and he needed to leave as soon as possible two policemen came to visit Peace and Susan in their lodgings and miraculously Peace um, managed to persuade the policeman to wait outside while he got dressed and uh, obviously by the time the police went back in there was an open window, some fluttering curtains and no Charlie Peace. So Charlie had travelled south and he travelled south to, to this neck of the woods just south of the river in Blackheath. I believe it's south of the river. I could be wrong. <laughs> so Here we have an illustration of the murder of Arthur Dyson. Although I think they've made Charlie Peace look a bit more handsome than he actually is. So here we go. To read you another, another short passage. Bullets fly in Blackheath. 
Victorian London had everything a man of Charlie Peace's situation and tastes could possibly desire. It was the epicentre of an empire, and as such could boast a wealth of cultural riches and endless possibilities. For a man with a love of music and art and a tireless sense of adventure, this was as close as a wicked murderer could ever get to finding heaven. Yet beyond the imposing towers and majestic architecture lay a sprawling land of poverty and crime. Such was the extent of this lawless subcity that a man could easily lose himself within the heaving crowds of common folk, struggling their way through lives of poverty and crime. It was in the grand galleries and countless concert halls that peace could enjoy life in the nation's capital, but it was in those narrow, fetid streets that he would initially apply his immoral trades. The London district of Lambeth has been in, exist in existence for almost a millennium, having been recorded for posterity in, in written documents since 1062, where the area was originally known as Lambethia, meaning landing place of the lambs. However, its newest residents were anything but a lamb. It was a lion let loose in the streets of the parish. By 1877, the area had become something of an embarrassment to its former self. Gone were the tranquil farmlands fed by the mighty Thames, only to be replaced by a maze of dirty streets winding their way through to the heart of London, like diseased arteries, carrying a steady flow of crime and poverty towards the banks of the famous river. Those unwelcoming streets were home to a large number of workhouses and cheap lodgings, brought into existence by the unstoppable flow of economic migrants heading to the city with dreams of wealth and success, only to find that the stinking inner-city suburbs filled with the effects of poverty. This was exactly the place Charlie Peace was drawn to, knowing that he could thrive in the mean streets and could make a living by any means possible. Immediately settling into the inauspicious surroundings of 25 Stangate Street, which has since been engulfed into the developing area of Upper Marsh, Peace found that the perfect place for himself and Susan. The poverty and lawlessness of the area made it possible to live in relative safety and, an and anonymity from the authorities, but just a few minutes across the Thames was the centre of the empire, the square mile. Peace was living in the belly of the beast, right under the noses of the same government who had offered such a hefty reward for his capture, but was hidden from sight, as was every resident of the London slums, by the squeamishness of those in power when it came to recognising the poor and needy that shared the city with the rich and the royals. Still presenting an image that marked himself as a respectable and trustworthy individual, although he had dispensed with the top hat, cane and kid gloves, Peace frequently walked the streets of Lambeth dressed in a dark, modest suit and gold rimmed spectacles. He was the epitome of the working class businessman, ambitious and energetic, yet without the breeding to see him living on the other side of the Thames. Keen to establish a legitimate business, Peace set himself up as a trader of musical instruments, which he bought and sold from his lodgings in Sangate Street. The couple, Peace and Susan Gray, became popular amongst the other residents of Lambeth, owing to Susan's friendly and outgoing nature and Peace's eccentricity and musical talent. For once it seemed to the couple that they had found their place in the world, and only the revelation of their terrible secrets could damage this newfound happiness. Known to all that frequented their home as Mr and Mrs Thompson, the two frequent travellers seemed to have put away their suitcases for the foreseeable future. The musical instrument business was doing well enough to put food on the table and take care of the modest rent, but as always with Charlie Peace, a modest income was never enough. Most of the musical instruments in Peace's home had uncertain origins, with no records of any kind kept as to the, delay, the, de the details of his trading. In fact, had any musician from the neighbouring areas visited Peace in order to replace a missing instrument, it was more than likely that they would return home having paid for the missing item, which was a polished and slightly altered version of its former self. 
Peace had always been a man who could not help himself when it came to helping himself. And it wasn't long after their arrival in Lambeth, they would slip away into Camberwell or other neighbouring districts under cover of darkness and return home with his pony pulling a cart full of new stock for his business. The acquisition of the pony, named Tommy by his new owner, had been the first piece of business attended to Mr. Thompson after securing the lodgings for himself and his wife. And such was his love for animals and his talent in taming even the wildest beast, a talent inherited from his father, Peace doted on Tommy, taking more care of the animal than he had ever taken of his now estranged family, who languished in Hull, struggling to make ends meet. It was a match made in heaven. Peace would always find a cathartic pleasure in the well-being of Tommy, spending hours every day grooming and feeding his new steed. In return, Tommy would gladly walk the cobbles of London in the early hours, pulling behind him a small cart, usually stuffed with the proceeds of a successful burglary. Unlike the previous year, the Christmas of 1877 found peace in good cheer. No longer was he alone flitting from town to town to preserve his freedom, but he was living a life full of far more joy than he could ever hope for. Taking the events of the previous year into account, it was in this spirit of festiveness that Peace finally took the time to reach out to his estranged family, inviting his 17-year-old daughter and her fiancé to join himself and Susan in London. The invitation was accepted, yet the written response received by Peace from his daughter Jane was also to bring sad news. Her namesake, Peace's mother, had passed away in Sheffield some months before. A flying visit just hours after the murder of Arthur Dyson would have been the last time the two would see each other, and it was with this sense of regret that Peace now decided to keep his loved ones near. The visit was a pleasant one, with Jane and her betrothed, a collier by the name of Bolsover, being taken around London to visit the sites by an impeccably dressed and unusually polite Peace. It was even noted later that, by Jane Peace, that her father approached policemen on a regular basis, politely asking directions and making friendly conversation. By the end of the visit, Bolsover took the opportunity to ask Peace for his permission to marry his daughter, a request which was happily granted. Peace had found the young man to be industrious and intelligent, which along with his cheery disposition had endeared this young collier to his soon-to-be father-in-law from the moment they met. However, Peace had no intention of bidding another goodbye to his family, and as soon as the couple returned from Hull, they found a letter addressed to the whole family waiting for them. In it, Peace had written of his affection and undying love for each and every one of them, and asked that they join himself and Susan in London on a permanent basis. Such was the comfortable lifestyle they now enjoyed in the nation's capital. One can only imagine the reaction of Susan Gray and Hannah Peace to this breathtakingly ambitious attempt to reunite his loved ones. However, this new invitation was also accepted. Whilst it does appear that Hannah Peace had made a very bad decision, it must be remembered that life in Hull was increasingly hard for her working to maintain the eating house which Peace had bought and without her husband's contribute. Susan had been pacified by the promise that she would remain the only object of Peace's affections and that he had made this strange request only in order to provide for his family who were deserving of their share of his newfound success. <coughs> Begrudgingly, his new partner agreed and seemed to agree with his unexpectedly philanthropic idea. Jane and her fiancé chose not to relocate as his job as a collier allowed the couple some welcome income with which they could build their life together in Hull. But Hannah and her son, Willie, Peace's stepson, after deep consideration, replied that they'd be joining Peace in London. The eating house was quickly sold and the proceeds brought to Peace on their arrival. After firstly renting two adjoining houses in Billingsgate Street, Greenwich, Peace was curtly informed by Susan that she did not care for the area. 
and if she expected to live in close proximity to her rival in Peter's affections, that this should be an area which suited her and was more appropriate to a couple of their comfortable means. In May 1877, Susan was granted her wish. Although the relocation to the more affluent district of Peckham meant that the group would only be able to occupy one house. However, with Hannah and Willie occupying the basement and Peace and Susan living separately on the other floors, the living arrangements at 5 East Terrace, Evelina Road, seemed to suit all of the occupants. We have a photo, that's 5 East Terrace. Obtaining such a prestigious abode had been far from simple, despite the gathering of all his loved ones under one roof. Peace's foremost thoughts had been for Tommy, his beloved pony. But after some negotiation with the letting agent, it was decided that Peace could build a stable on the premises. The agent, despite Peace's apparent wealth, had been wary in letting the premises to such an eccentric individual with an irregular entourage. He'd asked for, formula, for formal re references before the contract could be signed. In response to this, Peace asked the agent to dine with him one evening, and with his innate inability to, charge and, to charm and spin yarns, Peace had soon persuaded the man that no references would be required. The new house was very much a smart London townhouse, with steps leading to the front door and down to the separate basement door. Behind the building was a generously sized garden in which Tommy was allowed to wander to his heart's content. Those who had visited Five East Terrace described the interior to be as eccentric as its occupant, with oriental rugs, Venetian blinds and grand gilded picture frames and mirrors taking up every inch that wasn't already occupied by a vast array of musical instruments, in which all of them piece seemed to be proficient. Such was the reputation of the mysterious Mr. Thompson as a fine musician that it was a regular occurrence to see him walking through the streets carrying a violin case. Any onlooker would assume that he'd been entertaining at a respectable gathering, yet, had anyone had cause to in inspect the contents of the case, they wouldn't find any instrument for making music but an array of instruments crucial to housebreaking. Peace also became a regular at the local church and became one of the most popular parishioners to attend Sunday services. Ironically, during Peace's renewal of faith, a burglar had broken into the church and attempted to steal several precious items. No doubt Peace breathed a huge sigh of relief as the description was circulated, describing a man in no way similar to himself. I'm just going to uh, move forward a little bit because I'm aware that the buffet is almost ready. So, we move on to Charlie Peace being caught. So, shortly after this, shortly after um, Peace re uh, regaining his criminal career, um, there seemed to be another moment of strange fortune when Peace um, was walking along Farringdon Road one day and uh, actually physically bumped into a Sheffield policeman who was on holiday in London. Peace, on this occasion, uh, who was dressed more casually than usual, he, um, he, he heard the South Yorkshire accent and immediately fled. The policeman gave chase, but Peace managed to uh, make his escape up Holborn Viaduct and uh, managed to actually escape the, uh, the clutches of police again on this situation. Yet, we now get to the burglary, which would be the end of Charlie Peace. Having selected his target, a house in St John's Park, Blackheath, Peace set out just after midnight on the October the 10th, 1878. He'd reached his destination on foot, having never replaced his beloved Tommy, who had died just days before. 
and by 2am he'd received his destination having walked a slow and circuitous route in order not to arouse the suspicions of the policemen who seemed to have trebled in number over the last six months. Shortly after 2am, as peace crept through the upstairs room of the house which belonged to Mr Burness, one of the new policemen, Constable Robinson, was making his rounds of the area and was alerted to a light appearing suddenly in one of the back bedroom windows. Was this the work of the infamous Blackheath burglar? So, uh, a sketch of Constable Robinson. Quickly summoning two colleagues, Robinson instructed one of the, co one of the constables to approach the front door while he himself would go around to the back. Unfortunately for Peace, he wasn't quick enough on this occasion. He's, uh, he was in his later years by this point. Well, later years for, for the Victorian period, not so much for, for today. And as Peace uh, made an unexpected appearance out of one of the uh, back bedroom windows, jumping down onto the, uh, onto the lawn at the back, Robinson had already seen him and he was, he was on him like a shot. The burglar turned hearing the footsteps bellowing, keep back or by God I'll shoot you, whilst reaching into his deep pocket for his revolver. However, the same level of bravado exhibited by Arthur Dyson just a couple of years before, and in a repeat of the tenacity of the poor Constable Cart killed in Wally Range, Constable Robinson maintained his pursuit. Three shots quickly rang out in Blackheath night, each of them passing close to the onrushing policeman. Growing ever nearer to his prey, Robinson then heard the report of another shot which whistled by his head. At this point, the younger man was almost upon the burglar and leapt at his foe, delivering a hefty blow to the man's face. Entangled in a knot of limbs and desperate to make every attempt to free himself, the would-be assassin managed to lose the policeman's grip on his right hand, shouting, I'll settle you this time. He managed to angle the revolver towards his captor and pulled the trigger. The bullet passed through Constable Robinson's arm from point-blank range, yet despite the excruciating pain, the policeman did not loosen his grip on the prisoner. Although seriously injured, the youthful constable was, was to overpower his older attacker and flung him to the ground with considerable force. Taking hold of the revolver which had just seconds earlier been pointed at him, Constable Robinson used the weapon to deliver a heavy blow to the top of the, the assailant's head, rendering him unconscious. The famously elusive Charles Frederick Peace had finally been captured, done for by his own trusty revolver. And I'm just going to uh, finish it seems uh, seems fitting to uh, to end the presentation with well with the end of Charlie Peace. Tuesday, the 25th of February, 1879, was the day that Charlie Peace would hang. And there's so much public interest in this case that every local newspaper had announced this date to its readers. Despite his captivity, Peace was still something of a celebrity, and as such, his name was heard in churches and meeting rooms around the country. His deeds and eventual punishment used as a deterrent for any person threatened to stray from the path of righteousness. In Peace's hometown of Sheffield, a sermon was read by Dr. Potter, in which he warned all present of the temptations of crime and debauchery, assuring his congregation that all hopes of Peace's salvation is gone forever. Yet when this news reached Charlie Peace in his cell, so certain was he that his soul could be saved that he responded, well, Mr. Potter may think so, but I don't. On the Saturday before his execution, Peace was visited by his brother and sister-in-law with their two children. Although emotional and full of regret, he spoke with bravery as to the events which would greet him just three days later, hoping that this stoic show of acceptance would diminish the sense of sadness felt by his loved ones. The last full day of Peace's life arrived soon, 
and with it came a visit from his wife, daughter and son-in-law. Before the visitors had even had a chance to embrace him, Peace asked his visitors to keep their emotions in check. He was in good spirits and did not wish to be overcome by emotion during the final hours of his life. Never in his life had Peace been so willing to pray, and the small group knelt together for another half an hour with Peace praying for every member of his family and encouraging them to pray for him and for one another. When the prayers were concluded, Peace was once again reduced to tears and shook hands with each of his family members, pausing to hand a self-penned memorial to his wife, which read, In memory of Charles Peace, who was executed in Armley Prison, Tuesday, February 25th, 1879, aged 47. For that I done, but never intended. Thank you. And that was Ben Johnson on Charlie Peace, Murder, Mayhem, and the Master of Disguise. I would like to extend the warmest of thanks to Adam Wood, the editor and publisher of Ripperologist Magazine, and Frog Moody of Casebook Classic Crime Club for allowing the recording and release of this landmark conference. A huge debt of gratitude is owed to Mark Ripper for overseeing the recording of all of the talks and to the speakers themselves for granting their permission for making their contributions to the conference available for all of us to hear. As I said in my introduction, if you would like to become a subscriber to Ripperologist Magazine, the free bi-monthly journal of Jack the Ripper East End and Victorian Studies, send an email to contact at ripperologist.biz. For more information on the Casebook Classic Crime Club and to receive their free and also excellent magazine, go to timezonepublishing.com. Both publications have their own Facebook pages, so you can also find a lot of information there. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find uh, all of our roundtable talks, author interviews, and conference releases on Jack the Ripper and Victorian True Crime. The number of shows is now reaching 100, and that would never have been possible without the support of the Ripperologist community, and you are listeners, and so I thank you for your continued support, and thank you for listening. See you next time.